much uh, to all of you for coming today. This is the first session of our IMI seminars because last week, unfortunately, was cancelled, but uh, the speaker will come next year. So uh, please be aware of the updates from our website and seminars. And today we're delighted to have uh, Professor Eleanor Kaufman, um, who's a professor on uh, migration, gender migration and citizenship in Middlesex uh, University in London. And she's... Um, largely internationally known on, for her studies on gender migration, care, reproductive work, and understanding migration policies from a gender perspective. And today we're very pleased to have um, her presentation on her recent work on gender and high skill migration. And we have in IMI now a project on high skill migration and, and we're very happy to, to share with you uh, our advances later on and also to hear from you how you have approached this topic from a gender perspective. So thank you very much. We will have the usual 35 minutes, 40 minutes of presentation and then the Q&A. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, actually, it's not a recent topic of mine. It's actually one that I've been writing on since about 2000. So it's one dear to my heart. So thanks very much for inviting me. Um, I wanted to start off uh, the topic um, in a sense, the, the, the kind, these are the issues that I'll be having a look at. The continuing positive research on gender and skilled migration, uh, we were just talking about this, that if you look at any of the books, it's all, as we'll see, on less skilled, and there's very, very little on skilled in relation to gender. We might want to talk about why. I'm not going to go into it that much, but I think it's worth discussing, and some of it's very provocative. Um, I want to also look at the classification of skills because you noticed I actually in put a bracket around a high and I'd actually put around the question, a question mark against the high even in relation to skills. So that's one of the things I think we need to talk about. What's the distinction between high and so-called ordinarily skilled? Uh, I'm then going to look at what I call paradigmatic separation and dichotomies in the, and pre precisely looking at the, the way we study skilled migration and less skilled migration as if they are two completely different worlds which have nothing to do with each other and that the mig you know, migrants are almost completely different if they go through one route rather than the other. Um, following on from that I want to look at some of the heterogeneities and the diversities that this migration uh, has. I then want to look at, if, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to get through everything, but uh, gender and migration policies is actually something I've been writing on very recently and have worked on for a few years. Um, and Anna Boucher is the other person who has been doing Australia and Canada, but I've been focusing more on Europe, including the UK, despite what Cameron thinks we're in. Um, and then if we have time, um, some issues of how do we study gender and migration. And I'm not approaching it that much from a, um, let's say, a macro approach, as you'll see. Hold on, I'm getting... I'm trying to. Okay. Um, just to start off with, uh, and I think this typifies uh, some of the critiques um, of the lack of gender in skilled migration. So Anna Boucher uh, has said, skilled mi immigration has slipped by as a genderless story in which the androgynous skilled migrant is the central character and economists do most of the storytelling. I don't know how many economists have got in this room, but you know, that's, it, they are a discipline that one has to always have fights about gender issues. Um, Bonnie Slade, uh, in uh, the title of an article in relation to engineers, in Canada called it highly skilled but under-theorized, and I think I entirely agree there. And the third um, 
quote comes from Karina Mears in an article where she looked at South African uh, women who'd come in with, uh, as, as married women as part of a settler society immigration. Uh, she says, despite the now significant body of scholarship on the relationship between gender and international migration, scant attention has been paid to the gender transition experiences of highly skilled migrants. And to that we can also add someone who has worked on highly skilled, that is Brenda Yeo and Katie Willis, who looked at Singaporean women in China. Uh, they too have felt that there's uh, an em been too much of an emphasis on the work on devalued and often racialized labor of unskilled women, and that this too must be complemented by greater focus on professional and entrepreneurial women. And I uh, concur with that. Now, you might want to say I'm exaggerating and that there are that there is a body of work which uh, looks at uh, women in particular sectors and I'm here thinking of the sectors of social reproduction but skill sectors of social reproduction which also get very little attention uh, and I'm here thinking about nursing, social work, uh, teachers etc. But I will argue subsequently that one of the problems with this kind of work in terms of gender is that yes sometimes you get statistics on men and women fine but the problem is often that these studies have been commissioned by professional organizations or by international bodies and what they're basically interested in is the kind of human resources issues or workplace issues. You might say, well, yes, but gender is important there. I concur, but they haven't bothered to go what we could call beyond the workplace. Um, and I'll return to, in fact, two of these studies which have looked at the UK and which have gone further than what I'm saying now, but even in these cases, there are shortcomings. So in this presentation, I'm not going to, as I say, cover all of the issues. Um, I won't be able to do it in the time allocated. And so I'm going to be looking at, hold on if I get, wait, um, right, the, 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 looking at it in, in these kinds of topics. So the first one I want to look at is this question about the classification of skills. Um, what's the difference between high, so-called highly skilled and skilled. And it seems to me that it's been driven by the relationship to globalization and to modernization and to the knowledge economy. And that it has to do with the extent to which particular skills and knowledge fits in uh, into the knowledge economy and the extent to which skills are being valued in monetary terms. And I'll talk about this more when I look at immigration legislation. You'll see this very clearly. So it's not the actual level of education. So for example, if you take someone with a BA in computing science and a BA in social work, they won't be treated generally in immigration legislation the same way. They're both supposedly either skilled or highly skilled, however you want to define them, because they both in general have a university or tertiary education. But when you come to immigration legislation and the way the academics often look at, the liter at, the, at them, they're definitely not treated the same. Because what we see here is that the economic benefits of migration are often analyzed in the context of occupations in knowledge-based industries such as finance and science and technology. 
So the managerial, the scientific and the technological knowledge that underpins these industries are seen as the driving force of globalisation, productivity and wealth creation. And we see this very clearly in the EU's attitude towards the knowledge society and particularly its sense of competing against the US. Um, and again, we see this comes out in terms of some of the migration policies. For example, the blue card in Europe is premised on producing a, uh, a knowledge-based society or maximizing a knowledge-based society. And ICT, or the um, <coughs> IT and communications, in particular, a, male, a very male-dominated sector, and increasingly male-dominated, actually, um, rather than a, a, an increasingly female one, it epitomizes, actually, the male worker or the male mobile worker at the forefront of new knowledge economy and creation. And it's that kind of worker that has been, uh, has breached to some extent uh, the previous EU closure to labour migrants. And on the other hand, we have the association between female migration and skills is rarely made in academic and policy literature. So, for example, Alan Williams has written um, some very interesting work on uh, knowledge and skills and migration, but there's very little gender material in that work. And I want to tease out some of these issues um, subsequently. So if the norm of men as migrants has been uh, attenuated in migration literature, so we do have a gendered migration literature, um, it is not the case in relation to skilled migration, which close, is closely associated with um, the kinds of skills that are seen to promote circulation and mobility within almost a borderless um, globalised world. Now, so I, I, I think that this is what I'm trying to say here is that we have to be very careful how we classify skills. It's very ideological, it's being politically pushed uh, and it has tremendous repercussions when you look at immigration legislation. So I will now want to move on to look at the third point, which is what I call paradigmatic separation and dichotomies. Now, though not referring to gender aspects, Favell and Michael Smith, um, in their book on the human face of, mo of, of mobility, have challenged the assumption of a polarised world between what they call the elites and the proles, or the proletariat. Um, in which they argue the middling transnationals um, in class terms are missing. Now, you have some exceptions to this, Conrad's and, and Latham's work, um, and also Scott, um, Scott's work on the British middle class in Paris. But uh, that what they argue is that, in fact, mobility in Europe is much more widely spread uh, in class terms, and relocations also occur for far shorter periods. What they're talking about is that we shouldn't be looking just at permanent, supposedly long-term migration. People can be mobile and can migrate for all kinds of different periods, uh, different periods in their uh, lengths of time at different periods in their life. Now, if we want to transpose this in more gender terms, um, Parvati Raghuram and myself in an article that came out in, in introduction to a special issue on gender migration in Geoforum in 2005, 
um, noted a paradigmatic separation between the skilled and the unskilled, such that globalization for migrant women had been driven by the circulation of those undertaking less skilled work. And I'm thinking here in particular um, of Saskia Sassen's uh, conceptualization of counter-globalization, circuits of counter-globalization, where she looks at less skilled women who basically uh, migrate in order to ensure the survival of the household and ensure the survival of the national economy. So despite uh, the increasing interest in skilled migration in the past decade, I'm talking about in general, I'm not talking about in gender terms, uh, studies of gender and, and studies of the gender break, drain drain, which for example the World Bank and OECD have been quite concerned about, I would suggest that academic and policy studies of migrant women's employment usually focus on the less skilled reproductive sectors, especially with the proliferation of research on domestic work and care. You basically can't get beyond it in many cases. And I was in Blackpools just before coming here. I checked in some of the recent books and it confirmed what I'm saying. Okay. Um, so we could argue that this paradigmatic separation transcends the allocation of women to the less skilled sectors and men to the skilled sectors, but it actually also overlays uh, this dichotomy um, onto the way that we understand and study the migration of the skilled and the less skilled. So it's not just that it's allocating one sex to one type of labour and another to, to another type of labour, it's also the way that we study the difference between them and the way that we conceptualise them. So skilled is understood uniquely in economic terms, that's what it's about. And developments in the workplace at second best. The less skilled, on the other hand, is situated in the messy world of family and social networks, which, because we're talking about the less skilled, are required to provide the resources for the migration of the less well endowed, or those who encounter obstacles in crossing borders and settling in a country, because, of course, if you're less skilled, you need your social networks to help you. Uh, as if, you know, the skilled don't need it, although Steve Vertovich did look at professional networks and they certainly are a great help. Um, but as Favel et al. commented, the quite considerable work on transnational communities has focused on documenting the transnational strategies and resources of more typically lower-end labour and asylum-seeking migrants, whilst ethnographic research on the skilled he argues, it's coming I think mainly from Favell, is exceptional. Now, we could say it's maybe not quite as exceptional as it was. There has been certainly some movement in this area, but it's still not the most common. Now, other paradigmatic separations also shape our knowledge and conceptualization of skilled migration and migrants. And a key distinction, which is particularly relevant for women migrants, is that between those entering to perform work in skilled occupations, i.e. the classic skilled migration, and those with high levels of educational qualifications who are skilled migrants, who may, own, who may in fact be de-skilled de and unemployed um, post the migratory stage. And in fact, there's been, interestingly enough, and I'm not going to talk about this, but there has been quite a lot of interest by the European Commission and by OECD in the level of de-skilling, which is massive, um, certainly in the European community. Um, now, a significant there, uh, distinction, therefore, is that between economic 
and family migrations through which skilled migrants, in this case, are filtered. Skilled migrants, therefore, are studied through the prism of labour migration, whilst the world of family migration, and as we'll see, many women actually, skilled women, actually enter through family migration, is categorised as a social, uh, as part of the social world, in which skills seem to be irrelevant and of little interest. Yet large numbers of skilled female migrants, defined as those who have tertiary qualifications, um, enter through family migration routes. They may be marriage migrations, it can be family reunification, it can be accompanying a family member, whichever way. We know very little, however, about the work experiences of skilled female migrants who have moved for family reasons and who are likely to encounter greater difficulties in accessing professional and regulated pro uh, professions. And indeed, there are also men who come in this way and we know even just as little about them as well. Um, no, do we know much more about the way in which they develop strategies for their own um, career development and in order to get out of their de-skilling, if that be the case? There are, again, some small-scale studies, but they tend to be very small-scale. If I have time, I will come back to the, some of these studies at the end when we look at how do we study gender and skill migration. Now, I would also argue, to take it further, is that we actually underplay the significance of what you could call family matters and how these impact on economic migrations and mobilities. Again, if we think about labour migration is solely economic, forget any social reasons. Um, family matters, of course, extend quite widely. What do I mean by that? It could be childcare, elderly care, care of somebody who's got could be mental health problems, disabilities, etc. Could be your children's education, um, and it could be other kinds of personal matters. Um, you know, we could find some others, I'm sure, that don't fit into the ones I've talked about. And whilst these aspects are often associated with women, um, and women talk about these aspects when you interview them, and this is very important, um, men, of course, may not want to admit it. It doesn't mean that men are not inserted in a social world, uh, as if they're uniquely in an economic world. And indeed, um, a small-scale study that Poverty and I did about 10 years ago of doctors, we found that a number of them talked about return, not for economic reasons, but actually for social reasons. And one of the key reasons was either um, bringing up children in their you know, original culture, or they didn't like the education system in Britain, or they had elderly parents, you know, all kinds of reasons like that. And this is not coming from women, this is coming from men. Um, Aurélie Varel, in a study of returning IT migrants in India, and indeed it's a chapter that came out in a book that I co-edited, so it's, it wasn't a labour migration book, the book is on family migration, um, commented that studies of highly skilled migration have been, broad, have been broadly uh, imbued with the illusion, as she says, of a smooth circulation of skills, focusing on the legal, the economic and political mechanisms, and has largely ignored the implications for families and conjugal relations. Now, in this study uh, of return migrants in India, she interviewed 15 men, 8 women and 7 couples, and it took place precisely at the intersection of economic and family considerations. And it was embedded in intergenerational considerations of the reproduction of identity, very much the reproduction of their children's identity, and the social reproduction of the family and the duty of care towards parents. Uh, and this was really quite common. And in turn, the return migration itself 
had profound gender and intergenerational consequences. Re-emigration of skilled migrants was often initiated by women who found that in returning to India they couldn't get a job. They're often IT because one of the things I want to say is that you find in the professions that uh, there's what you could call professional homogamy in the sense that an IT person may marry an IT but a doctor often marries a doctor. So we're talking about migration of people working in the same sector. Um, so re-immigration was often initiated by women who couldn't get a job and who found the new gender relations in the couple very difficult to confront. And indeed, it's something I won't have time to talk about, but there's some very interesting literature which can be applied here, is looking at, at men and women moving from different gender orders. So in this case, it would be um, couples working, moving from the gender order of the United States I'm talking about gender relations in terms of employment um, in particular, but um, and moving back to a society in which there are different expectations. Um, and it has also been used in relation to Eastern Europeans moving to Germany because in this case it's the opposite, that women were used to working in science, but when they moved to Germany they found that they were out of place in scientific work workplaces. So this is, can be very important, particularly for a for women who are moving from one end gender order uh, to another. So we can say that migration often results from complex negotiations within the household and couples may actually evolve complex strategies in the context of global labour markets and state and professional regulations within the particular sector in which they work. And as I said, they often may work in the same sector. And we should not forget, as I say, um, precisely that, uh, the, that if they're working within a sector, uh, the same sector, it may well be men who make the initial move of migrating, but we shouldn't forget um, that what is often called trailing spouses and tied migrants, and is seen in a totally negative way, um, isn't always that way. That the second part, the partner who supposedly trails may use the opportunity, in fact, uh, to uh, upgrade the training, uh, to uh, read more, etc. And in fact, in a study which I'll talk a little bit more about um, in, uh, in Spain, uh, they looked at couples who'd moved together, and this wasn't as clear cut as some of this trailing uh, spouse literature, which often is premised on the business world where it can be much more difficult. Okay. So, um, in this case, what I'm arguing here is that uh, the, the whole issue of tied migrants needs to be looked at a bit more carefully uh, and not assume that it's always women who are kind of just trailing behind in, in this very negative way. Um, moving on to heterogeneity and diversity, um, skill migration is actually highly heterogeneous and highly diverse. Way back at the end of the 1990s, uh, John Salt wrote an article uh, where he had a whole typology with, I think it was about 13 or 15 different categories. Um, and what I want to point out here is that there are a range of sectors and that they not only do they differ in terms of how globalized they are, their degree of regulation by state authorities, the demands they make on employees, including the need to be mobile, which is very important, and a topic to which I'll return in a minute. The support that they give the person, whether employers give support uh, to the person who mi who's migrating, or is the person who's mi migrating, in, migrating indiv independently. 
Um, and also we need to look at the national and regional composition of the labour force in each sector and the socio-demographic characteristics according to age, gender, ethnicity. And of course how gender relations in the workplace interact with uh, generations beyond the workplace because this may well again differ from one sector to another according to the demands of the sector and they are very different if you're working in health service or you're working in IT or you're working in business. Um, now, turning to this issue of mobilities, which I think is particularly important in relation to these sectors, um, there's been little questioning of the different mo modalities of movement, which range from the short term to the regular or less frequent, uh, to temporary migration, but it could be of a year or two, uh, to the permanent. Because I think it's very important to look at these different sectors in terms of their demands for mobility, because they're often very different, as I've said, uh, and the implications of, uh, of careers for both men and women within each of these sectors may be very different, and how it interacts with what's beyond the workplace and with, um, with uh, household relationships uh, can also be very different. We also need to look at the stage in career progression and the age at which mobility may or may not be uh, required. Um, so, for example, Louise Ackers has done a lot of work on um, science careers in the EU and where she shows that there are real problems at postdoc and beyond levels because in science you are expected to move in a way that you're not expected to move in social science. Um, and in this Spanish study that I was talking about, apparently, uh, Maria may be able to say something about it, that uh, nowadays you are required to move from Spain if you want an academic career. This is not the case in Britain. But that means that different countries have different expectations of academic researchers and the degree to which they have to be mobile. But this imposed mobility, which could, we could call it, is usually at the beginning of a career. But you can work it out, it's not very difficult, that for women it may actually be extremely difficult if it comes in their mid-twenties and they're needing to move for their career. Um, so again, I think it's important that we look at the nature um, of mobility in particular, career, in particular sectors, because there are other sectors in which mobility is not, for example, required. And indeed, where moving from one cultural formation to another may pose enormous difficulties in career progression. I'm here thinking about social work, of which there's been a little bit of work recently, um, which looks at the fact that the history of social work and the professional practice in social work are very different from one uh, cultural sphere, one society to another. So when you move, you not only you don't move with something that's recognised, you actually have to move and learn the practices of the society in which you're going to. So this is quite different to say IT, which is seen as being a universal kind of skill and profession. Um, now. Again, uh, there have been very few studies in which gender issues have been seriously addressed, and I'm thinking about the ones that have been done from a human, res human resources perspective or uh, being commissioned by a professional organisation. I'm not going to have time to go into it, but uh, just to take one on social work, which is quite interesting because Shirlene Hussain and others um, start off with the migration literature. So they talk about the migration literature, they talk about the gender migration literature, and they say how care is very much seen to be a gendered issue. Um, but 
they never put anything back into it. There's no engagement with that literature. And interestingly enough, they don't really make anything of issues that they raise themselves. So again, it's quite interesting to look at the fact that there are certain very feminized sectors, but where male migrants, there's a much higher proportion of male migrants than there would be of, say, UK uh, nationals or UK trained who work in the sector. I'm here thinking about nursing and I'm thinking about social work. Now, social work's even more interesting because if you're a migrant from Australasia or the well, that part of the, the white commonwealth, basically, uh, you have a, a lower percentage of men than the British uh, situation. If you come from India, where there are a large number of social workers in Britain, or Africa, you have a massively high percentage, 50%. Well, I would ask ourselves, especially if one's looking at international development, um, why? You know, what's the cultural formation in the sense of social workers in the country of origin? Uh, it's, it's quite an interesting question, and Shaleen Hussain just leaves it and said this is interesting and worth studying. But, I, you know, I think that it's, it raises, we've looked at nursing in those terms of this kind of you know, brain drain, but it'd be interesting, I think, to look at social workers as well. Um, so, what I want to now move on to um, is to look at the question of gender and migration policies, because otherwise I will never finish and I don't move on to that, um, which is something which I think is extremely interesting. Um, and I've argued uh, in previous writing that not only do immigration policies reflect to varying degrees the calibration and stratification of desirable knowledge, but that this is, valuation is gendered in its criteria and its outcomes. The particular criteria adopted for filtering people with skills have, have, has, have varied across different countries and immigration systems. Yet despite the evidence of skilled women migrating more than men, for example the work by Dockier et al and Widmeyer and Dumont, um, and now the fact that they, there is evidence that they outnumber um, men in a number of European countries, there's actually very relatively little attention being paid to the extent to which immigration policies impact differently on women and men and result in gender inequalities. Um, the studies that have sought to understand the gendered outcomes arising from the criteria adopted by immigration policies have tended to focus on points-based systems, usually in countries of um, traditional immigration like Canada or Australia. And I would take Britain, because as you know it has a points-based well, points system, um, as a hybrid system nevertheless. You'll see in a minute why. Now, the point I think that what I, we, we, we see here is that in the European Union, the blue card tends to focus on um, salary level as the main uh, criteria for entry as a highly skilled migrant. Now, it doesn't need uh, a lot of actual intelligence to work out. If you're using income level or the salaries that somebody earns as your main criteria, that there is a massive gender pay gap. We know that, that's well documented. But we also know that those sectors that I've mentioned earlier that are propitious for globalization or are seen as having universal skills like business management and, um, and, and IT 
are, are also earned with much higher salaries. So if you look at the British system, okay, so it was a hybrid with tier one and tier two, those categories who are earning a lot of money could have, in the past, before they abolished, largely abolished tier one, could go for tier one. The female occupations of social work, teaching, uh, nursing, couldn't earn that kind of money, so you have to go for tier two, which is much more uh, locked into all series of kinds of regulations. So the question is that we need to ask ourselves is um, this classification, coming back to this classification of skills, and effectively what we're seeing um, in the European Union and to, some and to some extent in Britain is that the value of a person and the value of their skills is the translation of the, that valuation into monetary terms. It's not your social contribution to society, it's your monetary contribution. And so I just want to finish off um, looking at this in, in, for a few minutes. Um, so for example, the UK Migration Advisory Committee uh, stated that earnings are likely to be, on average, an excellent proxy for skills. This does not take into account, of course, the social construction and power relations in the evaluation and valuation of skills, which has been long recognised by feminist scholars. So the idea, again, that Mac thinks that money, you know, is, is, is a good proxy for skills makes me laugh quite a lot. Um, but we can also say that the value of skills depends on how and where they were acquired. So if you acquire some skills in certain countries, they're valued more highly than in others. And not only is the valuation of skills and therefore salaries affected by gender, race and age, but um, of course it's been forcefully noted that what skills mean is also contested. Skills are difficult to define and measure in reality. It may refer to what is encapsulated in the individual in terms of human capital. It may refer to what is required for a type of employment or necessary to perform a specific job. Um, and so, I, again, uh, it, we could say that it's very easy to measure educational qualifications and language competence, but it's much more difficult to measure soft skills. So we have this, I would say, a kind of Again, a, a kind of a, a complete dichotomy between on the what does the labour market say? Well, it's great to have soft skills, but migrant soft skills can't be measured. So they're not actually taken into account in terms of whether of immigration policies, because it's just too difficult. So what I want to argue here is that there's a lot of work to be done on this whole question of skills, the construction and the valuation of skills and immigration policies. And it's not easy because actually if you were going to do a proper gender sort of analysis of this, um, it needs quite a lot of data. So just to end, um, these are some of the, I haven't actually said anything about studying gender and skill migration because I think I'm going to go over my time if I do, but I just want to end here saying that we have kind of, I suppose, two or three different um, types of work that's been done in this area so far. There's been work done within the European Union of, you could call it women in science and IT. There's 
it's another block of work which is being done, usually uh, small-scale studies of women coming through, skilled women coming through the family route and the refugee route, and then it's largely focusing on de-skilling. And there seems to be this kind, again, of separation between these two types of work. But what they do share in common is the articulation or the attempt to articulate what is going on in the workplace or not going on in the workplace in terms of being excluded from the workplace and what is going on beyond the workplace. And so I would therefore argue that the agendered analysis of skilled migration needs to look at this. Now I'm not answering the question here of what are the drivers of um, skilled migration, that's another issue. Um, and I think that too has a gendered dimension to it, but it's not something I have worked on that much, uh, but I think it's important as well. Thanks very much.